0: Well, we are continuing our series of 1 Samuel, and tonight we're in chapter 13. So if you've got a Red Church Bible on your table, or your own Bible, um, in the Red Church Bible it's page 282, Um, we're in 1 Samuel 13, if you'd like to turn there, and we're going to read together. (coughs) So 1 Samuel 13. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 300 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Mishmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah. And the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land, and he said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become an offence to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at, camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gil- Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, And all the troops were with him, were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and has appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men that were, with, were staying at Gibeah in, of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments, one towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shul, another towards Beth and the third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zibium, facing a desert. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole of land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares mattock axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks, and and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes, and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. I'm going to invite Philip to uh, come and share God's word with us. I'm just going to pray as he, as he comes up. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Phil. And Lord, I pray that um, you would really use his words this evening um, to challenge us to explain clearly uh, what this passage says. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts, and open our ears, open our minds uh, to hear what you have to say for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, in Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on 1 Samuel, he tells this story. When James VI of Scotland was a king, it was expected of the king and everyone to attend church on Sundays. And James VI was notorious for talking to those around him during church services. On one Sunday, he was seated in the gallery with with several of his courtiers when the preacher, Robert Bruce, got up to speak. In his usual way, Robert Bruce began his sermon. So too, James VI began to natter to those around him in the gallery. Bruce paused, waiting for the chattering to stop, and with some courteousness, the king fell silent. When Robert Bruce started again, though, James VI saw it as the cue for him to begin to chat with his courtiers again. But again, Robert Bruce stopped and waited. And again, James the sixth fell quiet. This happened for a third time. But this time, Bruce turned and addressed the king directly, and he said these words, It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. Hear now, through his word. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. It's a great comeback, isn't it? Drop the mic. Boom. I can walk away a happy man. Robert Bruce took that opportunity to remind a chattering king of Scotland to listen to the roaring words of Jesus' gospel. And as he rebuked the king of Scotland for not listening to Jesus personally, he was also aware that the king of Scotland was setting an example that others could follow. Others would see him chatting through a gospel proclamation and would see it and do the same. So rather than listen to the lion of the, of the tribe of Judah, they would ignore God's word. And that's the thrust of this passage this evening. You see, it's a passage that's full of chatter and noise. There's geographical detail, the details of opinion and actions that are foolish. It's a world full of noise, like the chattering of a king. You see, King Saul had suddenly taken over the reins of his kingdom, Israel. He'd been given the leadership from Samuel. And the question we're all asking is this. What's he going to do? What kind of a king is he going to be like? Who's he going to listen to? A noisy world or God? How is he going to follow God faithfully in a situation where there's huge expectation from the people and from the nations around him? As he looks through the Facebook pages of all the other kings of all the other nations around him, is he going to actually go, Oh, I like them. They seem a happy bunch. I'm going to follow and do what they do. Or is he going to drop everything and listen to God, his king? And our passage invites the reader to stop and to work out what the endless chatter is saying, and to work out where is the voice of God in all this, and to follow the king who listens to the voice of God. That's where this passage is challenging us. And our first, our first point this evening, and it's on, on your sheets, I've got... Um, I've got some, some sheets for you. If um, if you're a little person of primary school age or less, I've got some keywords for you. They're in that box, um, and we're going to play a little game. Actually, if you're older and you feel a little bit like playing this game as well, you can. I, I will allow it. Um, but each time I, I I I say one of these words, you're allowed to tick that. Okay, um, and, um, and and there might be one or two words that are less common, that will be helpful. So, so do follow if you, if you want. That hopefully will help you follow through the sermon. Um, have you got enough? Has everyone, got a, has everyone who, got, who needs one got one? Because there are some spares over here and the spares over there. Good. Thanks, James. Brilliant. Okay, so you can follow me with that. So the first point that I'd like to point out from verses 1 to 8 is... Know that our idols will listen to the world. Know that our idols will listen to the world. It's a funny funny point, but follow me in it. So Samuel had just said farewell to the people of Israel as their leader. He'd passed on the baton of leadership to Saul, and all eyes were on Saul to see what he would do. And look at verse 1 and 2 with me. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin, the rest of the men he sent back to their homes. So the first thing Saul does is establishes a standing army to protect his kingdom. In other words, he did what was expected of him to do. Kinging in those days was all about having a good army, personal glory, pride. In other words, he does what every other king does. He recruits 3,000 men. 2,000 he keeps with himself in the north in Gilgal, and 1,000 with his son in the south, where the, the action was taking place around the Philistines' areas. And he listens to his peers. And then suddenly in all of this, his son, Jonathan, decides to, to act In verse 3, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. We don't know whether that's a wise or a foolish thing to do, we're not told, but there seems to be a bit of confusion creeping in about about what it means. And we know that confusion is is creeping in because of the subsequent message that Saul sent around. Look at the rest of verse 3 and and verse 4. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious, literally the word is a stench, to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. So Saul tells everybody, all of Israel, about Jonathan's attack, and he tries to gather them together around him to prepare to fight the Philistines, but instead the message goes out that saul had attacked the, uh, that saul had attacked the philistines so everyone's appalled they're appalled at saul not jonathan suddenly the king is responsible for what his army does and so the message goes around that saul not jonathan has made their peaceful little country a stench to the philistines and now they're expecting revenge and that's exactly what they got verse 5 tells tells us that like a bull stung by a bee, the Philistines gather to fight Israel. And their response is not subtle. It's a total mobilization of their army. The Philistine reaction is overkill, and that in turn sends the Israelites running in despair to their hideouts. And it's interesting to note, and this is really, 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 really important, at no point in this part of the passage is God mentioned. Did you notice that? A lot's happened. Samuel's given Saul the reins to the, to the nation. An army's been raised. War has been provoked. The people have panicked. And all this, God has not been consulted. He's not even been worshipped or mentioned. And it seems to be the narrator's point you see, God's silence or the, or, the, or the non-mentioning of God in a passage is what the writer of Samuel often does to help us realize where the mistake has been. And here it's a, it's a sense of, okay, this is what happens when you don't talk to God about things. God's king starts to behave like the kings of the nations around him. God's people start to behave Like the nations around them would behave in that situation. When God is not consulted and ignored, people behave in a worldly way. Saul raised an army without talking to God. And now Israel has no response when it goes wrong. It's a sorry mess. Where did it all begin? Well, it was earlier in chapters 10 to 12. In those chapters, we're told that Israel wanted a king like all the other nations had a king. It's that Facebook page syndrome again. They no longer wanted God as their king because no one on the Facebook pages had God as their king. Everybody else around them had their own king kinging around in their palaces. They wanted the same. So God gave them a king. The kind they approved of. In chapter 12, verse 13, we're told this. Saul was the king of their choosing. Where he's described as a head and shoulders above everybody around him. Above the whole nation of Israel. An absolute brute of a man. The kind of guy they wanted to be king over them. But he was he was a king who would not lead them to listen to God. He was their idol that listened to the world. He did what the kings around him did. And that created this mess. And the mess we see Saul and Israel in warns the reader of the mess that, follows, the mess that following idols leads to. I'll say that again. The mess that we see Saul and Israel in warns the reader of the mess that following idols leads to it shows us that an idol will only lead us into the ways of the world because the idols will only listen to the world. So if our idol, if if the most important thing in our life is the opinion of our friends, well, we must expect our friends to listen to the world. If our idol is approval, we must expect that the approval we seek will come from the world if our idol is anything other than jesus we must expect it will draw us away from godliness and towards listening to the world and that's the direction of idolatry whatever we make as the most important thing to, in our lives if it is not jesus it will ignore us it, it will it will lead us into ignoring god And it means, and listen, young people, this is really, really important. We've got to be healthily suspicious of what we are drawn to. Do you get what I'm saying? If you find it attractive, be healthily suspicious suspicious of it. Whether that's money or family or friends' opinion or popularity or insta-fame or lifestyle gurus or teachers' approvals or sports, they're not bad things in and of themselves, but they, if they become more important than Jesus, they will be shaped by our world and we, in turn, will be shaped by them. And that's what's happening to Saul, that's what's happening to Israel. Their idol is leading them to be shaped by the world. The passage is telling us, be careful. Our idols will only listen to the world and lead us into it. So that's the first point, verses 1 to 8. But the second point, verses 9 to the rest of the chapter, is simply this. Know that our idols will not listen to God. Know that our idols will not listen to God. So in the middle of this mess, where do we find Saul? He's totally away from the action. Way up in the north, in Gilgal, and everyone around him is still scared. His new army is useless and quickly deserting, and so he commits himself to doing the God thing his own way, hoping that it will work out well. Look at verse 9. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. Why does he do it? Well, it could well be that he'd seen Samuel do it before and it seemed to work for Samuel so he might as well have a dig. When Samuel offered the burnt offering on behalf of the people before battle, this is what happened in 1 Samuel 7 verse 10. Let me read it to you. Or if you want to turn back and just, you know, Flick a few pages to keep yourselves occupied. Well, that, that would work too. 1 Samuel 7 verse 10. This is what happened with Samuel before battle. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such panic that they were routed uh, before the Israelites. Wow. Can you see the attraction of, 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 of Saul's actions here? So he has a dig. He doesn't wait for Samuel, he tries to do God his own way, to find favour with the Lord his own way, and Samuel tells us in verse 13, it's a foolish thing to do. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel says. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. We have to remember that Samuel's role as prophet meant that he spoke the word of God, which meant that to disobey Samuel was to disobey the voice of the Lord. So when Saul acts without consulting Samuel, when he made that decision not to wait that little bit longer, it's as if he made the decision to cut God out of his world altogether and go his own way. And that seems to be the point here, despite the sketchy details. Although it's not clear which instruction that Saul had disobeyed, what is clear is that he'd not waited to hear from God through Samuel. That's the point here. And the consequences are immense and chilling. Verse 14, but now your kingdom will not endure, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his own people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. Saul didn't didn't listen to God's commands and the consequence was that his descendants were not to rule Israel as a dynasty and God would raise up a different king who would be a man after God's heart, jealous for God's glory. And it might seem like a harsh consequence But the king has just rejected God's way. He's just rejected God's word. And it's a public rejection. And God is saying, I cannot have a leader of my people who publicly rejects my word, who publicly rejects my ways. And the writer of the passage leaves us in no doubt that Saul was a doomed man from this point. Look at verse 15. Then Samuel left Gilgal. Then Samuel left Gilgal. Now I want us to understand, this is a chilling verse, the most chilling verse in all this passage. The impact of verse 15, the impact on, of verse 15 on Saul and all those gathered around him was a curse acted out. That's what's going on there. Because with Samuel's departure, the word of God left too. Samuel, the word of God, leaves Saul, God's king. And it's a dreadful enactment of what Samuel's prophecy would mean for Saul. And it's confirmed by the fact that the people's confidence in Saul had been shattered. What was left of Saul's little army was nothing more than a band of waifs and strays, 3,000 men of his glorious new model army whittled down to 600 And the rest of the passage tells us they were helpless. Look at verse 22. So on that day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son, Jonathan, had them. There were only two swords between all those 600 men. Saul had not listened to God. And the teaching point, for us is is twofold firstly spot the pattern spot the pattern I, I don't know about yourself but but we all have the propensity to make up our own rules we really do so we know what's wrong but we'll we'll slightly shape the rules so that we can just about get away with more. A classic in our house is um, is computer games, computer games. So so we'll give our boys uh, half an hour of tech. And um, sorry boys, you just have to cope with me here. This is a little insight into our into our lives. Give the boys half an hour of tech, and we get to the end of the half hour of tech. And what do we say? We say boys, that's enough. You need to finish your game and come back. Now one of two things happens normally. One is uh, we get distracted, and then 15 minutes later, we come back, and they still find that we're on tech. Either that, or we'll have this response back to us, and it will be like this: Can I just? Do you mind if I just finish this level? Can I just this? Can I just do? You, could, do you please just etc. So what's happened is, and this is the pattern, guys, and this is really, really the point. The pattern is this: this is the rule. And yet we want to just shape it in our way. Saul has been told, you wait for Samuel. But he goes, well, no, I'll just do the God thing my way. I'll just do the same thing that probably Samuel was going to do anyway. I'll do it in my own little way. I'll just shape the rules. Move them a little. Push the boundaries. Wiggle it around and I will be king. And not God. Do you notice that in your own heart? That's why we speed. <laughs> I'll ignore that, Jan. Jan's just winced. Sorry. I I'll, I'll, I'll pointed out. <laughs> uh, that's why we speed everybody. That's why, that's why we push the boundaries all the time. That's why we lie. That's why we steal. That's why we, we, we lust. That's why we, 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 we covet. That's why we look at Facebook and say, I want to be that person and that person and that person. And that. That's why, because we want to shape the boundaries in our way, just like Saul did. That's what happens when we're not aware of ourselves and we don't listen to God. Do you see that in this passage? I'll just, I'll just, just give me a little bit more. But the other teaching point is this, and I hope I hope as you look at yourselves, as this passage has forced me to look at myself, I hope we're left with this Give me a king I can trust and truly follow. That's where the readers of this passage were being directed to. The passage shows them how worldly kings treat the word of God and what the consequences of that are. And God's voice was forgotten then and it was withdrawn then and it can be forgotten now and withdrawn now. If we follow in this pattern of, oh God, I will just, I will just not go to church this Sunday. I will just stop giving. I will just remove myself. I will, I will just... And we find more and more the word of God is removed from us too. And it's a terrifying thing to happen. And it leaves the reader worrying and and fearful that that happens to themselves and longing for a king who is promised here in verse 14, a king who longs for God's own heart. And we know now that we've got the whole Bible. And that every king after Saul failed in some way to listen to God's word fully. Each had their faults. Each had their problems. Each failed to fully be the king after God's own heart. Except Jesus. And when you look at him using that first 14 filter, you begin to realize how precious he is. He's the king who thinks of himself last, who thinks of God's glory first and his people are close second. And therefore he is the king we can follow and love and long to know more and more and more. He is the king we can bow down to properly and most importantly, trust. Why? Because rather than being an idol that fails to listen to the word of God and fails to bring his people into a relationship with God. Jesus is God's word and he fulfills God's word fully and leads us into a relationship with God through his word. And I hope this passage leaves us with a longing for him. He is a king to follow, a king to fall in love with, A king to trust, a king to cherish, a king to fill our lives with more and more and more and more because the more we do so, the more in love with God we will be. There it is. If Saul is a kind of rubbish king, Jesus is the perfect king. So having read this passage, we're warned about listening to our worldly idols. They will lead us into a silence from God. But the passage in verse 14 promises a true king, doesn't it? A king we can follow. So see Jesus as this passage sees him. He's totally not Saul, he's totally loving. Totally trustworthy, totally sacrificing his life as our king, faithful and true and followable. How do we follow him? Well, we have to listen, don't we? Fill up our minds and our prayers with his word. As Robert Bruce tells us, here now, through his word, the lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent and listen listen to him. Read his word, revel in his word, think on his word, follow his word, love his word because Jesus is fully trustworthy as our king and the Bible is clear. To listen to Jesus is to follow him. So let me read 1 John 2 verse 3. 1 John 2 verse 3, if you can follow it in your Bibles, it's a lovely verse. And it summarizes, really, the, the application of, of all that we've heard this evening. 1 John 2, verse 3. Actually, can someone shout out the, the page number in the, in the church Bibles? 12.25? Thank you. 12.25, 1 John 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Perhaps this evening, I know it's a simple application, but it's one that's so important. If there's any aspect of our lives that we're convicted about, but we refuse to listen to God over, well, let's bring it to before him now. If there's any aspect of our lives where we say to God, well, let me just, let me just bring it to him now. If we're convicted about it, whether it's through lack of obedience like prayerlessness or through deliberate disobedience like gossip, then this evening let's see the true value of the king whom God has given us and let's talk to him about it. Let's listen to him. Let's repent of our sin in sorrow and in joy. Because as we come to this king in prayer and repentance, as we follow him, he will forgive us our sin and lead us, lead us aright into a relationship with God. That's our king. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we look at your word And it's humbling to be challenged in such a way. But Father God, we pray that we would be led into a relationship with our precious Lord Jesus. Deeper and deeper, more and more, may we be be consumed by love for him. So that we know that we have come to know him. Because his words... His commands live in us. Father God, forgive us when we say, "all oh, but just to you. Father, forgive us when we know what you would have us do in situations or have us not do in other situations and yet we turn to you and say, oh, but just forgive us, Father God. And may we think on Jesus. May we think on Jesus our King who calls us to love him and obey him. May we do that now in sorrow for our sin and in joy for knowing him. Amen.